Welcome back to the Diet Doctor podcast with Dr. Brett Schur. Today I'm joined by Dr. Eric Westman. Now, Dr. Westman is a true pioneer in the world of low-carb medicine. He's been involved for over 20 years, having started basically by reaching out to Dr. Atkins himself and then taking sort of the anecdotal approach and trying to apply it to science and starting to really further the research in low-carb. And this was over 20 years ago. And now he has experience as an associate professor of medicine at Duke. He's board certified in internal medicine and obesity medicine, and he's the founder of the Duke lifestyle and medicine clinic. Now he's trying to bring his approach uh, all over the country rather than just being in one setting. And he's doing that through the heal clinics. He's a true pioneer uh, in the field of low carb medicine, so much so that he's even proposing maybe that we need a keto specialty in, in medicine. And that's part of what I really enjoy about this interview is just just getting a little bit of a little picture of his experience because he's probably had has more singular experience than any provider out there. So to hear from his clinical perspective and also how he bridges the gap between his clinical perspective, clinical understanding and knowledge and experience and research and bringing that together to further this movement of low carb, who it's good for, what it can do, maybe where you have to be careful, uh, some of the roadblocks. He knows all of this. And of course, we can't get all of his pearls in a one hour interview, but I think we get quite a few out of this interview. So I hope you enjoy this interview with Dr. Eric Westman. For the full transcripts, join us at dietdoctor.com, where you can also see the wealth of other information we have on the website. So thank you for joining us and enjoy the interview with Dr. Eric Westman. Dr. Eric Westman, thanks so much for joining me on the Diet Doctor podcast today. My pleasure. When it comes to the world of low-carb and keto from a medical standpoint, you are truly one of the early pioneers, although I've heard you say you're, you're always quick to point out that you were actually trained by the real pioneers, trained by the luminaries, and you've been in this field for over 20 years having worked with Dr. Atkins and, and his staff. I want to start by hearing a little bit about your story, why you started into this 20 years ago after being a physician for so long and how you've progressed in, in your world um, of low-carb and keto in that time. Well, sure. Um, you know, um, it wasn't that I was looking for this. <laughs> <laughs> right. So you are, right? So imagine you're in your, your clinic and two people come through your office within a week having lost 50 pounds and you've never seen this before in any of your patients before. So first of all, you had to understand that this was a like uh, a lightning lightning bolt striking twice right. you know, within a certain period of time. And I was curious. I thought, so I, you know, I'm a, going back then. I was a young internist being trained in clinical trial research. So I learned all about biostatistics and all that, and and realized that if something happens, you know, it, it's possible. And then if it happens twice, well, it's more than possible. It might even happen more often. So so I was curious about these two patients and looked into the books and all. And at the time, I mean, Dr. Atkins was the only one in a clinic. So I, I kind of valued that when I read the book. It was all anecdotes and mm -hmm. not persuasive for me, but... There was at least a book and a clinic that seemed to be in operation. So uh, one of the patients came back. And I, I had read Dr. Atkins' book, and he uh, said, well, what's your problem with it? And I said, well, it's your cholesterol. Your cholesterol is going to go up because, you know, it's high fat. And so the, I remember the, the gentleman kind of looked at me and just said, well, why don't you check it, you know? And I was <laughs> like, well, okay, it, it's not 
you know, you're the one who's going to get the blood draw, not me. And yeah. it's a VA hospital. There's no expense to anyone, you know, maybe the taxpayer. I mean, so it was a very low risk thing to do. It turned out the cholesterol levels were all better. You know, even if you sliced it the old way, the new way, it yeah. was all better. You know, and so that kind of got my attention because everyone else said that it would be worse. So I knew, well, it couldn't be worse all the time, you know. <laughs> and then the second patient came through. I measured the cholesterol again, you know, kind of on purpose to see would it happen twice. And again, it was uh, was favorable, the change. So a lot of weight loss, good cholesterol. So what's the roadblock? Um, we did a review paper, and there was no data really published in the medical literature. So it was like this vast wasteland. And as a young researcher, I thought, well, this might be a good place to be. If there's no data and it clearly works and, you know, if it were safe, how easy would this be? I didn't even tell these people what to do. Right. If it, so, you know, like many people today, for me, I mean, this is 1998, I was worried about the safety. Mm-hmm. I mean, I knew it could work in two people because they were in front of me. I didn't have any idea how effective it would be in just about anyone who tries it, which is my opinion today. Yeah. But back then, um, so I thought I did what I, any reasonable young researcher would do. I wrote Dr. Atkins a letter. And now I realize no one else would ever do that. Because <laughs> people tell me that that was kind of a bizarre thing. No, I was just trying to get more information. Right. You know, my dad's a doctor, and and you know, I realized that you can learn things over a clinical practice and uh, a lifetime. And so he called back in kind of an awkward uh, phone conversation. It was something like, you know, yeah, what do you want? He said, oh, Dr. Atkins, you know, thanks for calling. And he said, well, um, yeah, what do you want? I said, well, I read your book. It seems to work. He kind of laughed. He, he said, like, yeah. Yeah, I've been doing it 30 years. And I said, yeah, but, I, you know, is it safe? And you don't have any studies. And how do I know that it's real? And, you know, yeah, that's the language of a young Duke clinical trialist. You know, show right. me the data. That's what you I think is so interesting. You approach this from sort of an academic standpoint well, at that. That's and, all and, I knew. And all there was was anecdotal evidence. So yeah. it's just the fact that you were even interested in it and didn't just blow it off is very is great. And you said, okay, well, let's let's create the evidence. Let's, let's find out if this works. And You know, I think an important part in my training is I teamed up right about that time, maybe a few years earlier, with the inventor of the nicotine patch. Yeah. His name is Jed Rose. He's still at Duke. And so I, I brushed with, uh, the, you know, a gen- you know, he's a, gen- a genius. He's brilliant. I still know him today and we're still friends. But he w- was pushing the envelope on knowledge about nicotine. And, you know, we did the study on that. What do you, you put that patch on your skin and you don't smoke? You know, so we did one of the first studies on the nicotine patch. And so I think that opened, uh, unlike a lot of doctors who are just in their own little camp, it opened my mind to what could be done and, and showed me that, yeah, if you want to change the world or find out something new, do a study. Right. You know, that was kind of the operating system I, I was working under. So when faced with two patients, clearly worked. I was worried about safety. Why not contact a doctor? And, you know, Dr. Atkins quickly said, it's all in my book. And and I said, that's not enough. And, and so he had the, you know, um, I don't know, wisdom or... or I don't know, to, to say, why don't you come to my office? You know, I, I wouldn't have done that had not I, if I hadn't been asked. Yeah. And so looking back, um, I use that today and I tell other people that you're welcome to come to my office and see what I do because I know that 
might be necessary to overcome all of these different barriers that goes against everything I've been taught. I mean, I've heard that so many times. Right. Um, so, you know, one thing led to another. We went to the office. It clearly worked. Although when I went back to Duke, some of my research colleagues said, well, they probably hired Broadway actors to sit in his office. Really? They yeah, were that they probably skeptical. faked the charts. Oh, my goodness. That yeah. is some serious skepticism. Of course, those same researchers... Ten years later, said, "Oh God, it was like you were shooting fish in a bucket. You knew what would work. It would work." And no, I didn't know. <laughs> yeah, but that's just the way the people change their view of how things are. Right. So at first, you know, I kind of knew it would work, but I was skeptical about the safety of it. And um, uh, and it's not like I worked for Dr. Atkins. I, I asked him for money to do research. And then um, our first study was done. Fifty people over six months, um, published in the American Journal of Medicine which is a pretty reputable internal medicine journal. And that's kind of my litmus test for anything you hear today. Uh, someone asked me, what about the you know, Dr. Smith diet? And, and I said, well, show me a paper in a peer-reviewed uh, journal, just, just 50 people over six months, and show me what happens. Right. And then that weeds out you know, 99% of the stuff you hear today because yeah. we want it to be evidence-based and based in solid science. And... Our study of the 50 people over six months was done and in, in published in 2002. In 2002. So even now, that's so old that people can't put that in their PhD thesis. It's over six years old or well, some so rule like that. Let's talk about the time frame here because it seems like low-carb and, and keto, whether it's Atkins or the modern-day low-carb, has sort of had like this bimodal distribution, right? It was, it was popular in what, the late 80s, early 90s maybe, and then started to fall off after that, about the time you were doing the research. It kind of fell off in popularity and now is seeing a resurgence. So tell us what you think yeah. about that history and that time frame of why that bimodal distribution. Well, looking back, so I started um, being in this uh, space, if you will, in the late 90s. But so when I look back, there, there was always a, a surge of popularity when, in, when the Atkins book or a revision of an Atkins book was published. Mm -hmm. And so the first one was published in 1972, I think. And then the next one was in the mid-90s, like 92. So each time there's a, a popular diet out there that clearly can work, it gets an uptick in people doing it. When our research was published in 2002, there was a, an increase in activity. We call that the low-carb craze of 2002 to, and 2003, mm -hmm. and then Dr. Atkins died in 2003. And that was what really um, stopped the uptick. There was no science that came out and said it was bad. In right. fact, all of the science was looking positive. And, um, and I've been told this by other people right at that moment, the South Beach diet with Dr. Agatston behind it was, was planned on being launched, which made it a, a great, there was no competition then. I mean, it was low-carb, kind of a low-carb, low-fat version, but it was clearly effective, at least for a while. Right. Um, and so that helped to have the Atkins craze fade away. Uh, but the continued research marched on. Uh, um, the first round of research other people were doing were kind of like what we did, low-carb versus low-fat. And now there have been so many studies on it. I mean, you, you there are meta-analyses of the studies, and mm -hmm. even you can get an app that shows you know, the score is something like 30 to nothing. Low-carb wins. You know? So not that low-fat can't work. It's just low-carb is better. So 
Um, but in the, the early days, uh, it was, I think, the, the Dr. Atkins dying, and then uh, the, you know, we call them evil forces in the low-carb keto world, but the other forces out there got a hold of Dr. Atkins' death certificate under false pretenses, and, oh, wow. and then the word got around the world in a press release that, you know, diet doctor dies obese. Which actually, you know, wasn't true, and it didn't matter at that point. And so there was a worldwide, uh, you know, again, you know, anti-Atkins bashing, which was really sad. You know, and um, uh, but in those days, uh, you know, it, you couldn't talk about eating fat. Right. In fact, we called it, you know, high protein because that was a safer way to say what what it was. When really, it's just low carb. I mean, and even well, then, you, you eat less, so you're not eating any more protein than before. I mean, so there's a lot of confusion. Yeah, so about I mean, it. a lot of people like to differentiate sort of the modern day low carb, high fat compared to the Atkins, with the big difference being lower protein on average in the modern day low carb. So, would you say that's not necessarily a true assessment? Well, I think that is true, but the variability, uh, so. The type of practice that I have allows for people to really come up with their own macronutrient mix. I don't tell people exactly what to eat. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I don't think we know yet what the exact macronutrient mix is. I mean, so even the keto experts will argue whether you want it to be higher in protein or higher in fat. You know, and I'm glad we're having that debate. But it, but we're like you know siblings. We got to get along. Don't don't get mad at each other. The rest of the world is looking at these sibling rivalry when you know we just need to have the message. I think that lowering the carbs is a good thing. Right. And then there's I'm glad we can do research now to answer some of these questions. Uh, but uh, you know just going back to that era, it was uh, taboo, it, meaning there was a social in, uh, social prohibition or um, of studying a high fat diet. And I was able to ask a couple of the world diet experts at that time, and they kind of looked at me and said, well, if you lower the carbs down that low, what are you going to do? Increase the fat? I and mean, we couldn't. <laughs> so there was a, and a taboo is kind of a social, there's no written rule that you can't study it. Right. So the, the scientists who fund things, the funding agencies could say, well, we don't stop people from studying it, and yet nobody applies. Well, nobody applies because there's a taboo. Right. But, so that was lifted in you know about the year 2002 with Jeff Volek's group and our group at Duke publishing you know like the same month the papers came out, and then uh, but when you look back um, you know from a news thing it's ancient history, but from a kind of science you know how conservative and slow to change yes. science and medicine especially is you know, it's really kind of recent when we can now go around with meta-analyses and, and show studies of studies that actually show that it is safe and effective and, you know, it's, but it, it is as strong as a drug. So once you get into a clinical situation, you want to be, um, uh, you know, um, not cautious, but you want to be aware that this is a very powerful thing. Yeah. Medi medicines can become too strong. As That's you a know. great point to yeah. make. That's a great point to make because people can just see all these anecdotal experiences and the the data now that's coming out about how successful this is and just go ahead and try it. But sometimes people can get into trouble with it, can't they? Yeah. You yeah. know, it's kind of like um, anyone can go and buy a motorcycle, mm -hmm. right? I mean, the dealer doesn't make sure you have a license, I don't think. Right. But if you don't know how to ride one, it can be unsafe or right. even dangerous. So it, it is uh, it, when you're in the clinical setting, 
you're seeing doctors, you're on medications and all that, it's um, uh, so powerful. You want to just work with someone who understands how the medicines can be reduced. Right. So for someone who's not on any medication, for someone who just wants to lose weight and um, prevents diabetes, high blood pressure, cardiovascular disease, Alzheimer's, they want all the, the proposed benefits. Do you have any concerns for them just jumping in and trying it on their own? Not really. You know, so um, I, I'm trained as an internal medicine doctor. So my training in nutrition came from uh, uh, inter, um, hospital practice. So mm -hmm. someone couldn't eat. You figured out what the essential nutrients were to give someone. And then reading and learning as much as I can from world experts, I would sit in the office of the fiber expert and say, do you really need fiber? And, and sit in the office of the fat expert. And, you know, and so I was able to do that to, to learn uh, from mainly researchers. And I mean, I'm, I'm compelled by the um, hunter-gatherer, the paleo-primal it's called face validity, meaning it's kind of common sense yeah. that if humans didn't have sugar until 100 years ago, maybe maybe we need to be a little careful with that. You know, if we didn't have grains for you know, until 10,000 years ago, I mean, it seems like a long time, but from human history standpoint, it's not a long time. Maybe we don't need to have grains, that kind of thing. So um, I'm um, also a history major uh, So in college, so valued, you know, spent a lot of time learning how to be a detective when you read history and learn from that. And, and then uh, so at least just knowing in relatively recent history that doctors used this approach from you know, 1860 to 1960, just about all the doctors knew about a low-carb diet and they used it for diabetes and obesity and then it was forgotten. Right. So, oh, well, but that knowledge is still there. Right before so, the drugs were developed, it was really the only treatment. It was the only so, treatment for so, diabetes. Yeah, yeah, but then why abandon it when the drugs came? And that's unfortunately wow. our drug-centric focus in, yeah. in the medical practice. Yeah. Well, you know, those those um, issues weren't so important to me as I, I focused on the health or, or studying the approach. It didn't it didn't? I mean, this is a whole you know book, books written on this, right? Right. Of how things got off track. I wanted to really focus on. Is this really going to be safe to study at first? And I was convinced, yes, yeah. you don't really need to eat, to eat carbs. And then there was even a, a, a common sense face validity that humans ate this way for a long time. And so that all kind of – and then doing, uh, you know, 15 years of research with people not eating many carbs at all, I, I'm left with the idea, why should I have anyone eat carbs if, if I fix their diabetes, hypertension, they feel great. And by not eating carbs, why should I have them go back to eating carbs? That's, that's kind of where I am. So I think this is healthy eating for anyone, you know, as long as you're not in a medical uh, situation, you know, medical problems, medications. Yeah. So when people are looking to get healthier, there's, you know, so much information out there that they can try and find. And keto diet, very low carb diet is obviously one of them. But do we do we muddy the waters if we sort of say, well, the real message is just avoid the sugars and the processed foods and kind of eat a little bit cleaner and you don't necessarily have to go keto. Do you think that muddies the waters a little bit and we should be focusing more on you should dive in and go keto? Like where do you see the balance of a more reasonable diet versus a very low carb keto diet? Yeah, you know, uh from my standpoint in a clinical practice of seeing people who are across a wide range of socioeconomic status, 
wide range of, of uh, educational status. I think it depends on the person. Mm-hmm. So that if you're going to be the guru on the mountain and say you must do this, 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 count your macros, do your ketone levels, uh, step on the scale, and, and oh yeah, that's the Virta health model. Um, it, you know, if you're going to expect everyone to do that and you won't treat them if they can't, you're going to only be able to help a certain segment of society, right? So I think the message needs to be tailored to the individual based on their their knowledge of how deep they need to know about it. Uh, can they just follow a certain set of foods without measuring macros and writing things down? Absolutely. So there are a lot of different ways to do it, a lot of different ways to teach it. And um, in the talk um, the talks I'm giving now, I'm trying to help tease out where the information comes from. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the current day keto comes from solid research. And a lot of the current day keto is just kind of glommed on like a you know Christmas tree ornament on the Christmas tree. I mean, show me data where you save lives by having grass-fed beef. Yeah. It doesn't exist. I mean, but it helps with the um, uh, sustainability and the local farmers market support and all that. Uh, so there, what's happened is kind of a, and it probably happened because of the, there needs to be a critical mass of people buying products, uh, doing it for the for the awareness to go up. Mm-hmm. And because it's so effective, even if you do it in all these different ways, that's why people stay with it. Yeah. Um, so I don't know the right answer if uh, if the research were presented to me and uh, or if I could even you know convince someone to help fund me to do the research um, that might even happen one day yeah. um, then I think different questions along this line are really important should you really pay attention every day or every meal to what your macros are I'm not convinced yet you know should you really be measuring the ketones and the breath blood urine? I know a lot of people who can do this without measuring anything at all. Right. But if you show me the science that says if your uh, beta-hydroxybutyrate is between one and two, you have some better outcome, even if it's you know feeling better. I think that's a valid outcome. Yeah. Then I'll start making a policy or general clinical recommendation. But I'm you know I try to hold out you know like the b- true beginnings where I started. I want the level of evidence to be high enough so that it could be doctor to doctor, hey, look, you do this, you're going to get that kind of result. And we do expect that. We we don't prescribe drugs unless we have a certain level of evidence behind it. We shouldn't change, you know, in a big way, our lifestyle prescriptions unless there's solid evidence behind it. Yeah, it's an interesting point. Um, At the same time, though, we have to recognize that evidence progresses slowly and anecdotes progress quickly. And so it's an interesting balance, isn't it, trying to how, see how to rectify that. Because when you're seeing hundreds if not thousands of patients that are improving in certain ways and the evidence might not support that, you still want to promote it. You still want to talk about it and encourage it. So it's an interesting balance to have to, to strike as a practitioner and a scientist. Well, you see, I believe clinical observation is evidence. Yeah. In fact, that's the history of clinical epidemiology starting with the evidence of what you see in your clinic. And I know there was a famous or a, um, 
powerful nutritional epidemiologist recently who said, I, would, I, I don't even care if there's thousands of anecdotes. I wouldn't, I wouldn't listen. Okay, that person's just totally out of touch. Yeah. No, if you, yes. Uh, in fact, it, so it depends on the context. If someone's dying, uh, uh, we, we used to have this disease, uh, meningitis or pneumonia for that matter, and everyone died mm-hmm. because there were no antibiotics. So the first dose of penicillin for someone with meningitis and they lived... You don't need a randomized trial. Right. That so that is evidence, and so we we've um, the way you use the term evidence is you are using the common medical understanding, which it means randomized trials, but in publications and journals. The clinical use of low carb keto is decades before the academic studies. So in fact, last year, uh, 2018, we published a survey of Facebook users. Type 1 grit. Oh, type 1 and grit. And that yeah. was a collaboration between Duke and Harvard. And um, it was in the journal of Pediatrics. It was the most read article, most influential article for the year, surveying Facebook. And even then, the, the um, powers that be in the type 1 diabetes world wrote a scathing letter to the editor afterwards saying, how could you give such attention to this? They're so out of touch. Right. So, so I do value the evidence before me. And in fact, in the clinical um, epidemiology world, and I trained, or I say loosely trained, or followed very carefully the McMaster Group in ha- Hamilton, Ontario. And um, the end of one trial, you know, using an individual as the outcome, uh, can give a lot of information. So that's where we are in fine-tuning a keto diet now as you do it, and of one meaning your sample size of one, just one person. You try something for a while, see how you do, and the problem is you can't really test long-term outcomes. Right. Like one of the sticking points today is what happens with the cholesterol, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, and, and it's going to take a decade for something to appear, so don't even do it now. And say, well, wait a sec, you know. So... Um, I think the clinical observation is evidence, and you can make decisions as a clinician based on the N of one, or that's called a multiple period crossover study. If you want the parlance right. from uh, from the research world, but yes, yeah, so when we when we see the N of one experiences or the N of one um, anecdotes that that people are doing, and all the things that keto can benefit, a keto lifestyle can benefit. There comes a point where an outsider would say, this is a bunch of snake oil. I mean, it can't improve everything. You can't have weight loss and reverse your diabetes and help your COPD. Now there's some articles about that and your arthritis and make you think better and help your skin. I mean, it sounds like too much. How do you respond to that? Yeah, I think even uh, a diet doctor pulled out a, a phrase I had. It's so unbelievable, people don't believe it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I, actually, I, it's kind of a judgment call when I'm talking to a group. Do I really let them know everything that gets better? You know. So based on the audience I'm in, if it's a group of people who've had that experience, I'll just, of course, call it out because they've experienced it. Right. You know. So that's when you're in a group of other doctors who are very skeptical. I'll, so I spoke to a chronic pain medicine group um, on this traveling trip I'm on now. And many of them had used low carb for chronic pain in their patients, but most had not. And so I just was very focused with what I knew really carefully, you know, obesity, diabetes, that's the research that we've mainly done and the observations um, I've seen in my clinic about pain getting better. Uh, especially arthritis and fibromyalgia, those things. And I, but actually, I did a literature review, and there were some 
pretty recent articles about the mechanisms of how keto could improve chronic pain at the neuron level. So, so yeah, you want to be careful to to not seem like a total zealot convert quack whatever, but it's true. Right. You know, so um, that for me, that just depends on what audience I'm speaking to. Right. That makes sense. That makes sense. Now, so let's talk about some of the practical issues that do, um, well, not not just to get better, but also some of the concerns and the hurdles that you hear from patients. So um, people say, I don't have a gallbladder. I can't do keto. Is that something I'm sure you've seen time and time again? Yeah. And doesn't seem to be a problem. Yeah. Do you, yeah. do you find that they might have a harder time adjusting to the higher fat intake initially and it takes a little longer or no, you don't even see that? I don't know. You know, these days I see people in follow-up usually two to four weeks after they start. Yeah. So by then there's been an adjustment or or uh, I suppose if they had a really bad problem and didn't come back to tell me, I wouldn't know. Okay. <laughs> but I do get that Fair question enough. a lot. I don't think having a gallbladder or not matters. And another um uh, aspect that I bring in is uh, even after weight loss surgery where they, they reroute all of the intestines so that the gallbladder outflow doesn't even time with a meal at all. This is the ruin why gastric bypass surgery. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, the human body is so robust at, at the, the digestive juices, you know, now get together down below the stomach, below the duodenum in the jejunum. And so the timing is all messed up after a ruin my gastric bypass. And they still gain weight. Yeah. So even in a much more extreme setting where the gallbladder juices and flow is all messed up, there isn't any problem with absorbing, and um, although they may have symptoms. So you know, I guess I, I'd be open to the idea, and I would love to see a series of 100 people who had their gallbladders out and then follow each one carefully, and, or, uh, and then we will know the the rate of occurrence of problems after a gallbladder. But from my vantage point, from what I know so far, it's not a reason not to do it. Yeah, very good. How about the concern of long-term bone health, that you know, too much protein and too low carbs, that type of diet is going to um, disrupt your bone health and make you more likely to have osteoporosis? I don't, I don't see that. Yeah. And now in a cohort of patients I've developed, um, not everyone gets measurements like that over time. Uh, but my teaching, the low-carb teaching, is that what you really need to prevent osteoporosis is protein. Right. And so many people who go from a traditional American diet to a keto diet actually improve the amount of protein that they eat. Um, and so that's another area that um, I think there's a lot of hue and cry, and, oh, you know, when there's very little supporting the bad to it. Right. Uh, I guess there's a... Um, the old idea that you had to have calcium. You know, how am I going to get my calcium? And I'll, you know, when I'm not having milk, well, I think that's, you know, we get information about what to eat and where nutrients come from by companies that want you to buy their products. So actually you get calcium in foods and, um, and the protein is probably the most important thing. But um, there are um, two studies I'm aware of which you know, is not a whole lot of evidence, but it's at least some. And they didn't show any change in the bone mineral density over 6 to 12 months in those who did a keto diet. So there's some data on it. Um, in the meantime, you just want to measure 
any health issue, including bone mineral density over time. Right. And if you see a change, then, well, talk to your doctor about what might need to, uh, what therapy might need to be changed. How about the long-term stability and sustainability of this diet? Because one of the biggest um, pushbacks is that, sure, it'll work short-term, but you're not going to be able to stay with it long-term. And to be fair, a lot of the low-carb versus low-fat studies you know, the curves separate at, you know, six months that low carb is better for weight loss. And then at 12 months, they sort of start to come together a little bit. And then the compliance drops off even in the studies. Um, so one of the big concerns is it's not a long-term sustainable diet. How do you, how do you respond to those criticisms? Uh, well, as someone who provided several studies to the literature on this, and know, and I know a lot of the other uh, authors of the other papers, most of them knew nothing about how to support a patient in a trial. Yeah. So you don't want to look to the clinical research and publications, the old data anyway, on how to help someone stay on it because they were there was the blind leading the blind. Yeah. I remember one investigator basically read the Atkins book. I said, well, did you go talk to Dr. Atkins? He said, well, no, I can't do that. I have to be impartial. I said, well, <laughs> I actually talked to Dr. Atkins. And what we did is we, and what he did is he kept the carbs down 20 grams or less for the whole time. And oh, well, that wasn't in the book. Yeah, I know. I wouldn't talk to the doctor. So, so the first round of studies, you just got to realize that they weren't done by the people who know how to do it. And so I, I kind of look at the, again, is only the only evidence what's in the literature? Obviously not. Right. So we can do better than those studies if we pull out all the bells and whistles. Imagine if we could shame and guilt, and of course I never do that, but if we could, you know, instill the fear of eating carbs in someone like the fear of eating fat is instilled in someone, yeah. that would help with long-term adherence. In fact, there's so many people I can't get to eat fat because they're so afraid of it, you know? Right. So um, I think the idea of um, you can't stay on it is doctors wanting a reason to just think they know more and they read the papers and, and they couldn't do it themselves, so how could they envision someone yeah. else doing it? And so this is another reason why it's a grassroots, ground-up thing, because I know people who've done this for a long time, right. decades, like me. Right, right. <laughs> and while, you know, oh, you're not normal. No, in fact, I don't do a whole lot of um, obsessing about things. And um, uh, I think it's becoming easier and easier now that the environment is become more supportive. Just in the last year in our area, you can get uh, riced cauliflower. The big stores are selling it in cheese crisps and all this stuff we used to have to teach people how to do. Yeah. So there's definitely a change that helps with the long-term um, ability of people to stay on it. Um, but yeah. there's also a role for helping people through the sticking points for right. a while too. So in fairness, it's not a straight line. People do have right. challenges. People do struggle at certain times. What are some of the main hurdles you see in your practice and some tips for our listeners on how they can get past some of those hurdles? Yeah, it's the falling into the old habits, which involve carbs. Yeah. And that could range from, 
you know, holidays with families coming in and you can't not have, you know, grandma's pie (laughs) to to emotional eating or I think it's really therapeutic eating, which means you you hit some emotional problem and you eat carbs and it temporarily makes you feel better. Yeah. And the unintended consequence is that it raises your insulin level and it makes your body store fat and lock it up. So, (laughs) you know, that's where I'm I, I think sugar free things are a fairly simple coping tool, even if you will, because the uh, ability to hit something with sweetness in it doesn't have the unintended consequence of the mm-hmm. insulin rise and uh, the weight gain. And I know there's a lot of, uh, it's fine tuning it for individuals, but uh, why not let people still use therapeutic eating? Uh, and so the mindless munching of a pork rind that has no carbs, yeah. uh, who knew I'd be telling people it'd be okay to eat pork rinds and bacon, and, and, uh, but it doesn't elicit that insulin signal mm-hmm. inside. So, yeah, you can still crunch on those things and it won't matter. So understanding the, um, that I may not have to behaviorally uh, work someone through that, just give them other options uh, that also have the the hand to mouth, the munchies, and the, right. that whole habit that's there. Uh, but you know, the holidays are particularly tough, uh, where uh, sugar comes out of everywhere, and um, and there are I've learned that there are ways to get chocolate without a whole lot of sugar, and that I have that ooh, in my first class. You know, and I can just see the eyes light up. You can. I can still eat chocolate. I can what? still eat chocolate. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, so you know it's it's complicated. It, it it's even led me to believe that we have a an entire uh, you know class or program or even medical specialty when you get into treating the the diseases because it's um, we end up talking about cauliflower instead of metformin, right. for example. <laughs> you know, so the practitioner and, and the coach has to know about food and and then support always supporting negative never being negative is, is so important and we're not taught that in medical school. Yeah, I mean, it, even in the keto world, we talk so much about the body's response, the insulin, the glucagon, the, you know, the macros and, but a lot of it falls back on the emotional and the behavioral changes. And like Absolutely. you said, that's something we're not, we're not taught very at all, really. So you've brought up this concept of a keto specialist, a, a physician keto specialist and that, um, you think that would greatly benefit the being able to implement keto safely and effectively. What do you see as some of the, the main teaching points of what that doctor would need that's different than what we're taught normally? Yeah, well, and you might say, do you need another specialty? Well, so I went through internal medicine and obesity medicine, that being the past president of the Obesity Medicine Association now. Yeah. And um, there are a lot of things in that training that you don't need if you're not using medication, if you're not doing surgery, that sort of thing. So to be more uh, parsimonious in what to teach someone, you wouldn't need to learn all of that stuff. You can actually sit for an exam for the obesity medicine, uh, American Board of Obesity Medicine now, but you don't really need to do all that. And, and then you don't really need to know about all the medications, uh, the pharmacy stuff, because you use diet instead of medications. That is if you're preventing someone from going down this path, you know. So um, uh, the most fundamental thing that we don't get in medical school is the understanding of basic nutrition. Mm -hmm. It's just 
gone. I mean, it's been gone for since I was in medical school in the the uh, 80s, early 80s, and even today, we can't get a. Uh, I, haven't, I haven't really tried all that hard, I have to admit, but I couldn't. You know, can't get a few hours on nutrition in medical school. So I teach medical students who are already in their clinicals, so they're already out in the um, clinical rotations. Yeah. And I teach medical residents, uh, or I um, have them rotate through my clinic. Um, That's great that you you're doing teaching to the students and residents because absolutely. so much of the the it seems like the movement to bring back nutrition to medical schools is based on the vegetarian and the vegan paradigm right now, which can the, be a challenge. The what? <laughs> the, uh-huh. the, if you look, I think it's Tufts um, and and uh, a couple other medical schools are instituting nutritional teaching from a plant based perspective. Really? Yeah. What's the evidence for that? Well, they say there's uh, you know the cumulative evidence of mostly epidemiological studies show that the vegetarian movement is healthier. Of course, so, they don't understand the quality of that. It's, it's it's interpreting the quality of the evidence and putting that in right. a context, which is a completely lost in that argument. Right. So epidemiology in my training as a scientist, a clinical scientist, clinical researcher in medicine, epidemiology is hypothesis, hypothesis generating. Right. And then you test it. Right. Because so many things that you see in epidemiology don't become true when you actually try to tease out exactly. So big E, we call big E epidemiology, little e clinical epidemiology, the science of experiments in clinical practice. That's McMaster, the Cochrane uh, um, collaboration. That it, It's as if these are different fields or, or different religions. It's like in, in the big E epidemiologists, I remember Walter Willett telling, saying on a podcast I was on with him, he said, well, Dr. Westman has a rather limited view of what research is. And I said, yeah, I want it to really mean something, you know? <laughs> and yeah. So, but basically, you know, he wrote the book, Nutritional Epidemiology. And if you say, well, that's not enough, you're basically, you know, bashing the whole life that he had and ego and money wrapped around. I mean, so even Ansel Keys, who we hold up as a terrible, you know, um, the one who started all of the low-fat stuff and fat's bad, um, is revered at the University of Minnesota because they've brought so much money into the institution. Right. So just because uh, there's a, uh, a field or it doesn't mean that it actually um, is scientific. Mm-hmm. And so um, that that's a little disturbing to me that a place like Tufts would, uh, and especially if they rolled out just one healthy way of eating, that's not scientific. Right. And that disturbs me about the whole vegetarian, vegan uh, idea in general is that they don't allow for the idea that you, there may be another way to be healthy. Because I think I'm learning more with um, Belinda and Gary Fetke's work of unraveling where does the, all this – a lot of this came from religious beginnings. Right. That it was a religious idea to not eat meat mm-hmm. and to be vegetarian. Well, you know – that's fine, but it doesn't mean everyone has to do that, and it's not the only healthy way to do it. Um, and so that, you know, it irks me a little bit when other people, you know, kind of blindly follow these people who say that it's the only way to do it. Yeah. That's not science. 
And in fairness, I do need to go back and double check that. I remember reading an article a little while ago that that Tufts was doing that. And I don't know if it's been in, implemented I, or how I it's changed. I think it's not just not just them. Actually, yeah, I, I, I'm afraid not. And I think your I was point, feigning that I didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> but your point is very well taken. That we cannot we cannot teach something as the way to do it unless right. unless the evidence is solid behind it, and we have to understand what that means in terms of the evidence. I, I, that's so important. Um, so let, let's talk about transition for a moment because you, you, you talked about money and influence. And one of the things that has really blossomed in the keto world is, is this world of now keto products um, where a lot of the initial teaching was real foods. Just eat the real foods because the keto products didn't exist. And now you, you've mentioned a number of these, whether it's pork rinds or moon cheese or, or some of the, some of the, um, the keto products that are, are made, they, they've made things a lot easier. But have they? Can they also complicate the picture in a way? And can they can they lead to um, uh, a little bit of danger with people overdoing it? And I say this knowing you're involved in a keto product, so I'm curious yeah. to get your perspective on it. Yeah, and it took me a long time to sort of grapple with these issues as well. Yeah. Um, and the whole idea of being involved in companies is it's that I'm an academic. In fact, right. I. I'm in part of an academia called the Society of General Internal Medicine where we don't even let pharmaceutical salesmen reps come into our offices. We're so anti-corporate. You know? right. So then I became uh, president of the Obesity Medicine Association where we were dying for companies to start making drugs for, to treat obesity because mm -hmm. there weren't any. So I went full circle to, uh, you know, yay, Novo Nordisk is making anti-obesity drugs. Hooray. Oh, rats. With my Society of General Internal Medicine hat, I'm anti-pharma. Right. You know, so, you know, there's a balance. I don't think you can be black and white about this. And when uh, these other products become available, uh, I, I guess I echo what you said first, which is stick to real food for the most part. Right. And uh, every now and then have a convenience thing. But, uh, you know, you're, you know patients, you know people. Some people will go off and do the darndest things. That's why we generally let or recommend people come back to us or follow up to make sure they're still doing it right. Um, but if the products, um, well, I just want to also mention that the keto products have raised the visibility. I think that's an important factor Good that point. that uh, people want to be able to purchase things. You get more companies involved. Uh, different companies now are putting on conferences based on some of the money they, they've raised. And so I think in general it's a good thing. Uh, my philosophy in my teaching has always come from total carbs, not net carbs. So when you're looking at a product, I teach my patients to carefully evaluate, is it low in total carbs? Mm -hmm. And and if it has net carb as the, you know, it has more fiber and other sugar alcohols, it might interfere with the process. And so I don't recommend those things at first. And then our product, um, the Adapt Your Life products, um, are truly low in total carbs. And if it is high or, uh, you know, we have, there's a protein bar that may have 12, 11 carbs per the whole bar, and we're pretty transparent about that, yeah. it may not be keto-friendly. But the little keto bar, uh, keto minis, they're called, have been very popular. And, um, uh, and it's not only because they're truly low in total carbs, there's not a lot of extra fillers. And, you know, it turns out now that I'm learning about food and, and, and products, a lot of the... 
uh, stuff that's added to a low carb bar are just fillers to make it look larger. Right. Yeah, because there's that whole people aren't going to buy something so small. Oh. And, and so there's stuff that are not really needed and they just complicate things. So anyway, again, that's getting to the clean eating. Um, the keto, uh, not only products now there are, are that have food in them, but now there are keto supplements, right? Mm-hmm. So that was a big um, surprise. We always thought that you couldn't really drink ketones or eat them because the body would digest them and they'd be so unpalatable and no one would want to do it. So what I've seen is that the keto, exogenous ketone idea has come a long way in terms of palatability. Mm-hmm. And so people are able to consume them and they do have a, a kind of an immediate effect that we would kind of say is a subjective, people feel better, but where's the data and evidence, you know, where's the studies? And, and so I'm in that space of waiting for companies to pony up the studies so that I can make it, you know, that old litmus test of show me 50 people over yeah. six months using the product, doing the diet, and, and publish it in a peer-reviewed journal, and then I'll, I'll comment on it. Right. So, But it's, I, I see there's a lot of promise there because the early research on exogenous ketones, and, and, and it kind of defies my prediction. I, I thought, well, why not just not eat carbs? And then you don't need to add ketones, right? Ketones come from your own body fat. Right. But they're showing, it's very preliminary, but still provocative that giving exogenous ketones to someone who's a naturally carb eater, just eating carbs still, not in ketosis, might have some beneficial effects. And that's pretty amazing if yeah. that's true. It's it's amazing, but, but also disturbing at the same time until more evidence comes because that's a physiological well, state that has drug. never existed, right? Well, it is a drug, right? To have a high carb intake, high glucose and glycogen and and high ketones has really never existed in, in human history, and that, well, that's a little unnerving for me. There's, um, I, I used to be involved in the FDA sort of thinking uh, in the old days when nicotine uh, was in a different place. So I kind of understand a little bit about when something's called a drug and when yeah. it's not a drug and all that. And, and the exogenous ketones, if they do have these kinds of drug-like effects... They probably need to be regulated like a drug, oh, interesting. which means the, the the studies need to be done to show that not only that they work, but that they're safe for however long a period of time. And you know, the only time I've I've seen something, it wasn't an exogenous ketone. It was actually uh, probably uh, you know a homemade version of a apple cider vinegar shake with something. And the the gentleman didn't understand that he needed to eat real food. Yeah. He thought the keto diet was just having this keto product or shake that he made. And, and he said, but my hunger's gone. I, I don't want to eat. Oh boy. Well, so that's where you get into if a company's selling their product and they, oh, they forgot to tell them that they should eat food right. as well, <laughs> then that's getting, you know, and of course, I'm sure the companies tell people that, you know, you really need to eat food too. But as you know, people will do what people do right. and, and we want to make it as safe as possible even when people do kind of stray from the general um, general teaching. Yeah. The, I guess the point of exogenous ketones that, that I find most interesting is its role as a therapeutic agent, whether it's traumatic brain injury, whether yeah. it's treating Alzheimer's disease, whether it's um, you know, helping somebody mostly with a neurological condition or maybe even athletic performance or something where yeah. where the ketone level actually measures or actually matters. But when it comes to health in general, there I'm, I'm not so sure about the benefits because there it's the, the lifestyle that allows you to get into ketosis, I think, that is the, the most beneficial 
um, intervention rather than chasing a ketone level. Well, that's where I am too. Yeah. I, I, that's my uh, general, you know, putting it all together at the moment. Yeah. yeah until okay. there, there are more data that convince me otherwise, I, I agree with what yeah. you're thinking too. All right. Very good. Um, I want to circle back to one thing you said when you, when you were differentiating between net carbs and total carbs. And so with the, the keto products, um, you say focusing on total carbs is, is, is your advice, which I think is fantastic advice. But when it comes to natural foods, you know, the vegetables and the, and the nuts and the seeds, then do you revert to net carbs, uh, for your calculation then? So you see sort of like a, 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 um, a difference in how you calculate the carbs based on whether it's a natural food or a synthetic product? Yeah, no, uh, I use total carbs, whether it's natural food, really vegetables or, or even a product. And, and I have to say that, um, I'm, I, again, I'll be convinced when more data are presented, but the teaching I received from, you know, 1863 Banting diet to uh, Dr. Atkins and Eads and Rosedale and, um, and Bernstein and all through the 1900s, late 1900s. So what I studied was in our research and what I continue to do clinically today is using total carbs across the board mm. for anything you eat or drink. So um, back in the early 2000s, and I think um, Mike Eads would probably have the best, Mike and Mary Dan have the best knowledge about where net carbs came from. But it was kind of a new thing, a new kid on the block. And I know in our uh, book, the Atkin, New Atkins for a New You, Westman Finney Volek were the authors on it. We used net carbs. And I think that it's fine, but it's kind of like using an over-the-counter medicine meaning that it can work for a lot of people, including those who don't have insulin resistance. Mm -hmm. I mean, they can probably eat a lot more carbs anyway. I mean, they're just, they're lucky, you know? But um, so I think of the net carb calculation, 20 net as sort of the over-the-counter version, and that's why I felt comfortable writing a book that had net carbs as the calculation in it. It wasn't wrong or, you know, it's just not quite as effective. Right. So in, if someone comes, they make, uh, comes to my clinic, they make the, you know, the trek and, and um, I sit down with them and, and teach them. I use total carbs, whether it's real food or fake food. And I've seen, you know, uh, dozens, I think, uh, who use net carbs and it stopped working for them. And all I did was change them to total carbs, which meant they ate fewer vegetables and it started working. So uh, I would love to do a clinical trial, uh, you know, randomize people to total carbs or net carbs and, or, and then a flexibility arm maybe. And that, so that's where I am, where I teach people to figure out their own threshold. Right. Although um, most people after, you know, six months of not eating carbs, I mean, they don't really want to anymore. And so I don't make people go back to eating carbs either. Do you find that if you're if they're increasing their net carbs and remaining ketosis, which is obviously easy to measure just by checking your your blood levels, that there's still a difference in efficacy, or as long as you're in ketosis, the total amount of carbs does not matter as much. That's a great question. That's part of your study. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. <laughs> so I'm. Um, uh, I think the ketosis would be the outcome that's more important. So if you can eat more carbs. And uh, using net or total, and in general, that means if you're the younger you are, the more carbs you can have. The more active you are, the more carbs you can have. Right. Um, 
and ketones would be the guide. And I think most people will say that blood or urine are fine. You know, yes, one is probably a little more precise than the other, but I still use urine ketones as a guide for people. Um, I, would, I would think uh, ketosis is the where where you would want to stop. So add back carbs, and you know, slowly, not 20 to 100. It's more 20 to 25 for right. a week. Measure your ketones, your weight, your general you know hunger, things like that. And then if you can add back five again, so now you're up to 30 after two weeks. 35, three weeks, four weeks, you know, most people won't be able to eat over 50 total carbs. Uh, and, you know, but that's, I don't know, 80 to 100 net, I mean, depending on how you do it. And even then I tried to come up with a table that showed the exact calculation between total and net. I mean, you really can't do it yeah. because the uh, subtraction isn't perfect. Right. Uh, so a lot of um, uh, general principles keep it low follow the ketone level in some way as a guide. Okay, very good. Now, I remember a discussion we had a while ago where you said you were telling me how people send you the sickest of the sick to get them ready for surgery. So whether it's the bariatric surgeon to shrink the livers, the fatty livers, so they can do bariatric surgery, whether it's the orthopedic surgeons um, to get them to lose weight so they can operate on their on their hips. Or what fascinated me was the cardiac surgeons sending you their, their uh, severe heart failure patients to have them lose weight so they can implant an LVAD, a mechanical, a mechanical pump in their heart. That they, You see a number of these patients to yeah. get them healthier for their surgeries, and they are the sickest of the sick. So I guess two, two questions here. One is just a little, to hear a little bit more about that experience because it's amazing. But two, is there anybody who is too sick for a keto diet or have, you know, in the past six months, have you taken anybody off a keto diet and why? So it's two sort of different uh, questions uh, there, but I, I'd be curious to get your perspective on those. Sure. So, you know, just remember, I, I went through internal medicine training where we get a lot of hospital-based um, training of people in the intensive care unit, you know, who are the organ failure of all different organs. That's, that's who we took care of. Yeah. You know, so it didn't seem beyond out of my scope of practice because I had a history of taking care of people who were ill. And so when we opened the clinical practice using a keto diet in 2006, I just opened the door and, and then, you know, obesity comes in, you know, after six months or a year, you kind of like, you know, this really works. You know, that's where I'm starting, you know, to say, you know, look, if you do this, it's going to work. I can't make you do it and right. can't go home with you, but you know, like a prescription drug, the evidence is that strong, you know, it's going to work. So then other doctors got wind, uh, you know, there's, there's the first, oh, that doesn't work. And then, oh, that works. Who, who did you see? Oh, Dr. Westman. Oh, and then the other doctor will forget about it. Time will pass. And then, oh, who did you see? Dr. Westman. Oh, Dr. Well, maybe lightning does strike twice. You know, it, this so is the sort of influence, yeah, it, it influence would... of how do you influence other doctors? It's yeah. usually through the patients. Right. And not through the medical literature, you know, so uh, and I think this happens in most communities right. where so you get known as the obesity guy and then got word got out within the Duke community. And and then the surgeons are under sort of a, uh, um, a change in financial remuneration so that they only get a certain amount of money. And if they someone has a complication, they don't get any more money. And so they really 
tried to find the root causes of people having more complications, and it was obesity. Obesity, sure. So I started getting more referrals from orthopedic surgeons, uh, from other surgeons who wanted to operate. And I think there's kind of a unspoken rule that you shouldn't operate if the BMI is over a certain level, if, if the person weighs so much. Right. So they come to me, I help them lose weight, they go back to get their knee replaced. And so that started happening. And then I got a few... Um, people sent from the cardiac surgery clinic. And I, I, I remember the first gentleman, and I, he didn't have a pulse. And you know, the LVADs, the, the ventricular assist devices, came out after my training. Yeah. We didn't have them back in the 80s. Right. So I went into outpatient medicine, didn't really know much about so it. So they and work as a continuous pump rather than the pulse of the heart. It's a continuous flow, so, so there's no pulse. When you feel their pulse is not there. It's very unnerving the first time, yeah. <laughs> And then the gentleman said, oh, I need to change my battery. Excuse me. I'm like, what? You're going to take this off the battery? You know, it's a very quick thing. Yeah. And anyway, so, then I, so I get comfortable. in. Um, so I adapted the keto diet to also accommodate the restrictions for heart failure. Yeah. So it's low sodium, a fluid restriction as well. And then also the adaptation for the vitamin K restriction because they're all on warfarin. Oh, on warfarin, right. Because so. if, if you clot, you'll clot off the pump right. and it's disastrous. So, um, yeah, so the, the other funny thing is that the, it's the heart surgeons who want to put transplants in these patients. And I don't know how much transplant costs or, or brings in money-wise, uh, probably I'm a sure. lot, yeah. so that they, the transplant service started sending me all of their pre-transplants who were too heavy yeah. to operate on. And uh, I mean, these are probably the sickest people who are still ambulatory. Right. And uh, many of them, though, are, are walking in cardiac rehab, and it's amazing how that can be a, a bridge. Uh, well, the VADs, uh, ventricular assist devices, were thought to be a bridge. And now Duke is one of the biggest VAD programs in the in the world, and they're keeping them in longer and longer because they can't get hearts or because right. people are too heavy. And so we've been able to at Duke keep lots of people on. Now I'm I'm not part of that program. They just send me the patients and I send them back. Yeah. But at, and it, now it turns out, come to find out, one of the surgeons, cardiothoracic surgeons, had become a keto doctor oh, or keto personally. Yeah. You know, and that's the general theme is that the doctor tries it first and goes, oh, what's good for me must be good for right. everyone, which, no, don't make that mistake. But So your experience uh, paints the spectrum from the, you know, no medical problems, just wanting to lose some weight to the yeah. people with diabetes to the sickest of the sick. And yeah. you've been, you've intervened on all of them with a keto diet. So in the past few months, in your experience, who have you had to take off a keto diet? Who has it not worked for? And what are your concerns? So uh, the bread and butter patient I see is, is someone with type 2 diabetes, hypertension, obesity, arthritis. And, and like we talked about at the beginning, yes, it is unbelievable. All these things get better. Yeah. And it's using lifestyle, not medications. Um, you know, I can't think of any case where for a medical reason... I took someone off a keto diet. I mean, one of the areas that um, we're looking at and I think needs more science wrapped around it is um, early renal insufficiency. Mm. So kidney issues, I don't know for sure. In my area, the uh, kidney specialists kind of just expect the kidney failure to happen. It, it, it progresses. I mean, so they, they're not you know upset if someone's on keto and they're they're on dialysis or they're pre-dialysis. They just put the um, uh, fistula in, you know, 
uh, as a precaution. Um, there, I think in uh, whether someone can lose weight, I, I think there is a, a subset of folks who, for whatever reason, they're exercising a lot. They're they're at the gym. They're doing you know you know every day. They're doing an hour or more of intense exercise, and the ad lib way of I just have people eat till they're full and all that doesn't work. Yeah. And so there you just have to work with people on it, the calorie issue. Uh, and, you know, God forbid that you wouldn't exercise, you know, um, although it's interesting to watch when someone gets sick and then they can't exercise. Sometimes that's when the weight loss happens. Right. But uh, there's something about exercise and it's in the literature. Uh, Steve Finney gave a great uh, talk some years ago at our obesity meetings on how some people gain weight when you restrict calories and make them exercise. And so that's just a little niche in the obesity world we know, and that spills over to the keto world as yeah. well. I think it's a fascinating interaction between exercise and weight loss and health because we know exercise yeah. is good for health, but may not always be good for exercise. And sometimes it gives people an excuse to eat more as well. So there's also that psychological right. component. But right. all right. Well, well, Dr. Westman, this has been a great discussion and get uh, just a little sliver of your experience in the 20 plus years that you've been doing this has been wonderful. So thank you for sharing all that with us. If people want to learn more about you, where would you direct them to go? Well, my pleasure to talk to you. I, I want to uh, try to share everything I know so other people don't have to repeat this 20 years <laughs> and right. wait for it. But uh, so, you know, I, I'm at Duke uh, still uh, full time and do a clinical practice there. Sadly, the uh, wait period is about eight months to come see me at Duke. So I'm working with two new companies. One of them is called Heal Clinics, H-E-A-L clinics.com. Mm -hmm. And we're seeing people through there, not always me personally, but we're basically training people. And Jackie Eberstein, who worked with Dr. Atkins, is on my team there as director of education. So Great. Heal Clinics is a way to get access to that information now. And then the Adapt Products, uh, adapterlife.com, has a lot of free information there. In fact, Glenn Finkel, my co-owner there, has taught me a lot about using YouTube as a quick and easy way. So I have a lot of YouTube videos there Great. with Adapt Your Life. Uh, and, um, yeah, and of course, Diet Doctor is a great resource, and I'm glad a lot of the information that I've been able to generate is used at dietdoctor.com, too. Wonderful. All right. Well, thank you for all your work, and we look forward to seeing so much more from you in the future.